Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 323 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Investment Officer, an interview with Paul Sellian. My name is Brandy Dean. And I'm Richard Johannesson. And Brandy, thank you so much for inviting Paul to join us on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. This was a really cool interview. And what I really enjoyed about it was that Paul, who was an investment officer, financial investment officer, ultimately had to become a health investment officer in order to be able to manage his Lyme disease. Yes. And one of the benefits he talked about, about going to the clinics was he was able to meet other patients from all over the world and became aware of the importance of becoming self-medically literate. I'm really excited to introduce the investment officer to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Paul, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Hi there. Good to be with you today. Really excited to have you. And, and just as exciting is having Brandy Dean as my co-host. So Brandy, you want to say hi to the folks and remind people about uh, the important role you play in the uh, Tickborn community. Hi, it's so nice to be here again. I think the last time I was interviewed was two years ago. And um, I invited my friend, Paul Cillian, um, as he has served on the uh, board at the Dean Center for Tickborn Illness, uh, which was a center focused on helping people living with chronic tick-borne disease. And I also run and manage Ride Out Lyme, which is a nationwide organization that um, raises funds for people living with tick-borne illness as well. Well, thank you, Brandy, for everything that you do. And uh, and we've missed you. I don't think we've talked to you since we were on your clubhouse uh, probably about a year ago. So it's nice to reconnect yeah. with you and <laughs> uh, and connect with Paul. So Paul, give us a little background. I understand you're a Long Island boy, that you, uh, you're from where Matt and I have from. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, when I was a kid, I grew up in Port Washington, Long Island, um, little seaside community. Um, like several, um, several grillion other people, I was born in Queens, New York, um, and um, grew up in Long Island, and then lived in Connecticut for a whole bunch of years, and went to high school and college in Connecticut, and um, and then um, met my wife in Connecticut. Went off to New York City to work and worked in places like New York, Hartford, Boston, London, back to Boston. And I'm currently living um, on Aquidneck Island in Rhode Island. So that's that's the whole story. So you spent a lot of time in the line belt, Paul, uh, from uh, your early days on Long Island, uh, where I grew up um, and, uh, and, and spent a lot of time in Connecticut. So let's first talk a little bit about what you knew about ticks and tick diseases during your childhood. Were you tick aware? Were you, were you tick disease aware? And did you take any steps to uh, protect yourself from ticks and tick diseases during your pre-college uh, life? So, you know, um, I was very active uh, in the Boy Scouts as a kid and spent a lot of time backpacking along the Appalachian Trail in Connecticut and New York and Massachusetts worked as a camp counselor. And so, um, and as you said, in, in the Lyme belt, so to speak. And so I was probably bitten countless times by ticks um, when I was uh, young. Um, and back then, um, you know, we didn't have any concept of Lyme. And so you would dig the ticks out, pull them off, throw them away, and, and you would just go on. And so, um, um, yeah, so, you know, just very, very little understanding. And then, and then, you know, for me, having gone to high school and then college in Connecticut, where the town of Lyme is, slowly you start to become aware of this idea that there's this thing called Lyme disease. In fact, for me, one of the reasons I was able to get um, my head around what was going on with me um, quicker than some, quicker than most, is because I had a good buddy from high school who married a gal from Lyme, Connecticut. And, um, and unfortunately, she's had a much tougher journey than I've had. And because I was aware of her situation, I was able to look at it and sort of iterate to an answer quicker than I might otherwise have. And that happens to, you know, with many, many folks in the community that, you know, they find themselves being diagnosed by uh, a fellow person with uh, Lyme disease or observing the symptoms of someone else who has Lyme disease. And you get to a point where uh, you're self-diagnosing and then having that confirmed by a Lyme literate doctor in many cases. So that sounds like that was what your journey was. You, you observed the symptoms of someone else and you were able to um, see this in yourself. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't quite as uh, simple and linear as I 
I may be making it sound because some of my early symptoms were a little, that gave me a little bit of a head fake, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I normally have low blood pressure. And so what was happening to me was my blood pressure was dropping precipitously. And so of course you get, then you get dizzy when that happens. Um, one day I was driving to the office in Boston and my arm became numb and I thought, well, that's curious. Um, and so, um, so some of those things um, gave me a bit of a head fake. Um, in fact, so, you know, what happened to me was I went to see my PCP about this, this, this syncope or this um, feeling dizzy. Um, and I tried to explain what was happening. And I had one of these bouts right in front of her. And so she she put a blood pressure cuff on me and, and she's like, well, you don't have much of a blood pressure. And she didn't know what was going on. And so she actually had me admitted to Mass General Hospital on the spot because okay. she didn't know what so was pause. going on. Let, so let's pause that for a second because I want to build up to this because this is a really important part of the, the podcast. But let, let's, let's, let's let the folks learn a little bit more about you and, and who you were leading up to that point. And then we'll get Got there. It. So so give us give us some more give us some sense of you you gave us a sense of what your childhood was like and what you what you were doing um you know in nature talk to us a little bit about what it is that you were planning to do with your life what was your dream what were your, where were your goals where did you think god was taking you during your 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 um during your education and and prior to graduating from graduate school yeah so um you know so you know, I um, studied finance and economics in college and um, following following college, for me, the plan was always to go off to the big city, New York, um, and to land myself a job on Wall Street and, and to go to work. And that's exactly what I did. And so um, I had met my future wife in college. And so the two of us headed off after college to New York City. She was working at the UN. I was working for Chase Bank and, you know, and life just, life just, you know, started to unfold for us. Um, you know, pretty typical story, you know, boy meets girl, uh, they get married, uh, they have four kids. Um, so, um, you know, so we lived in New York City when we were young and, um, and then moved out to Connecticut as people often do uh, when they couple up and uh, started having uh, kids. And then, so yeah, for me, it was a, it was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty traditional, you know, uh, story about uh, job and, and family life um, and, you know, and just, and just going to work and, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what life's pretty much looked like for us. So now talk to us about when the symptoms that you began to describe for us a moment ago started to develop the, 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 the blood pressure issues. And then of course you had the, the issue of having the, the numbness in your arm. So we went from, you know, we went from living in New York City to living in um, Connecticut to living in Hartford. And, and, and so through our 20s and 30s, you know, really no, no health issues to speak of. And then we um, ended up moving to Boston. Uh, we needed a job, ended up moving to Boston, living in uh, beautiful Concord, Massachusetts. And, you know, Concord, like a lot of places, is just a very fertile place for ticks. It's, there's a lot of trees. It's very wet. And so we're living in Concord. I'm working as the chief investment officer of the bank. I'm managing a $100 billion bond portfolio. I've got a team of, of analysts working for me around the world. And, you know, things are going along fine. We're active we're active in church. We've got three kids uh, now. Now, just when we arrived there, we had just adopted a fourth. So, you know, it's just a busy family life centered around, uh, you know, life centered around family and church and and friends and the community. And so, you know, just, uh, you know, in some ways, what probably looks like a pretty traditional um, family family life. And and, and and it was when we were living in Concord that I first started to notice that I had uh, had these symptoms that um, were um, rather curious. So now, just prior to the curious symptoms, do you recall having been bitten by a tick? Um, no, 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 
no recollection of, oh, I got bit by a tick today. Oh, I have a big rash. Oh, um, no, not, not at that time. Okay. Now, what was going on in your life uh, that may have been stressful that could have been immunosuppressive? Because generally, we, we only see people who are bitten by a tick and then becoming very ill if they are either, either bitten by a number of ticks or they're living in a high mold environment or something like that, which would be immunosuppressive. The, the typical story, quite frankly, at least on our podcast, is there is some large gap in time between when someone is bitten by a tick, meaning their body is harboring all these microbes, which is likely what was going on with you, having grown up in the Lyme belt and being bitten probably hundreds of times, and then and then, um, and then then getting sick. So where, what was going on just before you got sick and what stressors were going on in your life that may have led you to ha be suffering from, um, you know, uh, immunocompromising uh, events? You know, um, I think with the benefit of hindsight, looking back, <clears throat> um, one of the things that I, um, I wonder about is when I was a child, <clears throat> um, both my parents smoked and growing up in a household where two people smoked probably wasn't the best thing, you know, for, for the health of a, a, a young, a, a young person. And so my dad, my dad quit, my mom did not quit. Um, she had significant health problems and did not live to a ripe old age. And so, um, but, you know, if you take that sort of early exposure to cigarette smoke, um, a lifetime of suboptimal diet, um, working hard on a Wall Street job for kids, commute, you know, um, you know, I think, and, and I, and I, and I, and I think, you know, the certain genetic predispositions, um, I, I think it's sort of all just somehow conspired to say, uh, you've overtaxed your body and, um, and, um, yeah, you know, near as I can tell that's, that, that's what was going on with me. Okay, so let's let's now focus on how your symptoms developed and how you ultimately got to uh, a place where you were diagnosed. How how did how did your symptoms develop from these early symptoms to uh, to your full blown line? So you know, as I was starting to say before, you know, early symptoms: um, syncope, blood pressure uh, dropping down, um, you know, some numbness in in, in my arms. Um, and then what happened to me was, you know, I, my doctor said, I don't know what's up with you. I want you to have more tests. I want you to go um, spend a couple of days at Mass General. And for me, um, I know there are other people who have chronic Lyme who have much more serious cases than I do. It turns out that for the, you know, four or five years where I was really working hard to uh, improve my health. I actually didn't miss a lot of work, but I, I, I took, um, I took three days off. I, I did as the doctor suggested because she could, she couldn't tell what the diagnosis was and um, went to mass general. They did. Um, I met with 24 doctors because I counted them. They ran every test uh, that they had. And at the end of three days, they said, you know what we have, we see nothing wrong with you. Uh, go home, and oh, by the way, those um, uh, and 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 that's it. And so um, I had just at the same time, just before I had gone in, I had met, <clears throat> I had suspected Lyme, but I didn't realize Lyme could do these uh, sorts of things to you. And so um, I had met Donna Felsenstein, who is a, a wonderful Lyme doctor at Mass General. Um, and, um, but again, I, you know, I, I don't know how I, 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 you know, I didn't put the two things together. Um, and so I left the hospital and I'm clearly sick. The thing I think that saved me was my PCP had also grown up in Connecticut and she had a good friend, uh, who had had Lyme. And so she said, so she and I talked and I, I told her the story about my, my friend from Lyme, Connecticut. And she said, you know what? 
And she did something that most, a lot of Western doctors don't want to do, which is she decided to diagnose symptomatically, looked at those symptoms and said, what could it hurt? Take the doxycycline and see if things improve. And so, so I, I, I immediately started on a course of doxycycline and within three weeks, I started feeling significantly better. And so it was sort of the eureka moment. And um, I think that, you know, the key for me was that this doctor was willing to diagnose symptomatically as opposed to waiting for a test, which, you know, which didn't really exist in any meaningful way then anyway. So around what year was this that you went for your million dollar workup and you saw 23 doctors at one of the major medical centers in um, on the East Coast and you left without a diagnosis? So that was back in 2010, roughly. Um, and I, I, it's interesting, um, you know, um, the way you asked the question, uh, because, because it is fascinating to me how much more literate the entire world is relative to Lyme. So, you know, I remember moving up here from Connecticut, uh, to Massachusetts and, you know, look, Connecticut, and Massachusetts look like the same state, right? And in Connecticut, you could talk about Lyme at a cocktail party and it was considered polite conversation. You come to Massachusetts and I remember people saying, what's Lyme? And I thought like, well, how could that be? And then that's when I started to learn that there were all sorts of curious politics involved with medicine and uh, different groups that had different opinions about Lyme and chronic Lyme. And it was just fascinating to me to see what a difference uh, the attitude of the medical community was between Connecticut, let's say, and Massachusetts. Now, having said that, um, you know, part of it I get, right? Um, there's an approach that Western medicine takes to, to Lyme and, uh, and they, um, they dot their I's and cross their T's. It's fascinating to me how things have changed. You know, I go see uh, the orthopedic doctor at Mass General today uh, for, let's say, um, um, an arthritic knee and the PA is asking me, are you sure you don't have Lyme and have you been bit by ticks? Things have changed so much in the past decade uh, for the better. Um, you know, fascinating. You know, this young PA said to me, oh yeah. I, so I asked her, I said, do you see a lot of Lyme? She goes, we have at least one person a week who comes in here thinking they have a bad knee and they really have Lyme. But things have changed so much. So before Brandy takes you through your treatment plan, I'd like to explore a little bit further with you or unpack with you a little bit further this, this um, 23 doctor, uh, 24 doctor uh, visit that you had. Um, you're in the line belt, right? You, 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 are, you are not testing positive for anything despite I'm sure uh, numerous um, diagnostic tests. Did anybody even mention to you as somebody who grew up in the line belt, who spent his whole life in the line belt, who was in the line belt at that moment, ever mentioned to you that it's possible that you might be suffering from a tick disease? No, no, no. Again, I think, I think it's 2010 and it's fascinating. You know, I think, I think part of the problem may have been just the notion of, if you think about the symptoms, right? The, 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 the plunging blood pressure, right? So what is that? Um, that's probably Lyme infecting the vagus nerve, right? Um, that, that's a fairly evolved concept you know, for infectious disease in 2010, right? I, I, think, I think, again, I think things have changed so much that um, I think people today who have a similar path or experience are in much better shape to getting a diagnosis much quicker, you know, thanks to folks like you and Brandy and others, right? Um, and just the amount of information that's out there on social media, I think that's a godsend to people. So I, I do too, Paul, but I, I'm just wondering whether or not you were, you, you, you believe that perhaps Lyme was something that your doctors were not considering because of the Lyme wars and the concerns that doctors had at that time um, about whether or not their licenses might be might be suspended as a result of a Lyme diagnosis, or do you just think they just didn't have knowledge? Because here on Long Island, we had doctors like Buroscano and, and and McDonald who were doing some you know some extensive uh, you know clinical work uh, in the in the nineties, you know in the you know in the in the in the eighties and the nineties. 
Well, I mean, I would pull Brandy into this conversation because I think Brandy, you've been in the Boston area longer than I have. We we only moved to Boston in 2004. And I, I think, I don't know whether people had blinders on, they didn't want to have the conversation. Um, I don't even think it was a question of chronic Lyme for me. It was a question of just, do you have Lyme then, right? I mean, it just, it feels like in 2010, it almost feels like a different world from what we have now. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. Um, I know that um, when I got sick uh, before Lyme, you know, you get sick, you come down with strep throat or something, you take an antibiotic and you feel better. So I know that you had mentioned that you took an antibiotic so you started to feel well, but you've been in treating for several years. So can you talk about like the first course of treatment that you took? And um, you had mentioned that you also ended up going to Europe for treatment and what led you to um, traveling so far for treatment outside of the United States. So, yeah, so, so you know, so I started with oral doxycycline like most folks do, right? And um, that's pretty, I, I think that's one thing that most, most doctors anyway agree as sort of an initial response. Um, but I have a gut, um, I have a very weak gut and um, I would take the oral antibiotics and in a very short period of time, my gut would fall apart and say, you know what, we're just not happy taking these things. And so, so then um, um, I went with a pick line and, um, and that, um, and I was warned, I was warned um, by the doctor that there are risks with that. And I developed clots in my arm, which, um, and so the pick line had to be pulled out. And so, um, so now I'm trying to figure out, okay, so what do I do if my gut doesn't want to take antibiotics and my knowledge of Lyme at this time is very limited. And I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm reading as much as I can on the internet, trying to learn things. Um, um, but, you know, things like herbal treatment and other things, you know, were still years away for me. And so, um, I, I was convicted that I was going to get better. I think, I think that the one thing that saved me was, um, my attitude, which was, um, you know, I viewed myself as a healthy person. Um, I viewed this as an annoyance, um, and I was convicted that I was going to get past this. Um, and so when I found myself not getting better, and I think the symptom that was the most annoying to me was, was, was uh, feeling fatigue, you know, which I think was from the Epstein-Barr that associates a lot of Lyme, right? And so for me, that was hard. I, you know, I dragged myself to work, did my job, but I just, you know, just, just felt so tired and fatigued a lot. And so um, eventually I had a friend um, who had a daughter who was sick and had a very positive experience um, with a clinic in Switzerland. And so, um, so I went to this clinic, um, the Paracelsus Clinic in, in, in Switzerland. And it was very expensive. It was a whole lot of money. But in my mind, if I'm the primary breadwinner in my family, um, it's an investment and it's an investment that's worth making. And I went there and I met um, a number of fascinating people when I was there. Um, um, people from all over the world and who, and, and for me, it was a big learning experience. I met people from Australia and the UK and the US and, and other places, and they knew much more about, about medicine, um, even though most of them were, were lay people. One person was a, a Harvard Doc, trained doctor, but the rest of these were just people. And I, I would listen to these folks sitting around in the cafeteria of this clinic. And what I realized was these people had become real students of themselves, their bodies, um, and, and, and the medical information that was available. And this was when I first learned this idea that for people who have had Lyme for a while, that maybe taking antibiotics was a, not a good idea, that there was another school of thought. 
um, you know, I think by now, like we said before, it's pretty standard. If you if if you get Lyme, most doctors are going to uh, prescribe four to six weeks of doxycycline, and and that's a pretty standard protocol to to deal with um, the the Lyme. But after a period of time, it's not clear that just taking more and more antibiotics is helpful, right? Because it attacks your gut, and your gut has your immune system. And I started listening to these other um, people that I met at this clinic in Switzerland and realized that there was a whole nother um, approach to uh, trying to get healthy that involved things like healing your gut, eating well, you know, tending to just overall uh, wellness and, um, and health and um, using herbs instead of uh, antibiotics and and that really opened my eyes and um, and and relative to Lyme, I that's when I just basically stopped taking antibiotics because I realized that I was probably doing more harm than good. So that was for me that was a big that was a that was a big um, big inflection point in my knowledge um, at that point. And Paul, can you share what do you feel like? Um, I know that you've done a lot of treatments over the course of 10 years. Um, what are the treatments you feel like really made, um, helped you improve? So look, so the way I eventually got better and, and, and look, I want to recognize right now for your listeners that um, some of these things like going to a clinic in Switzerland uh, are very expensive and they're not necessarily within the reach of, of every person. Right. So um but, um, but that's also why organizations like Randy's Red Out Lime and other groups exist to try and help support patients that, that need resources. And it's a, it's a real godsend. Um, the way I eventually um, began to heal was um, I learned of another clinic in Germany. Um, um, and that uh, clinic uses um, what's called extreme hypothermia or heat treatment. And uh, I think this is one of the things that I learned. If you want to get better, not only do you have to own it, but you have to be willing at, at some times to take calculated risks. So imagine here I am, a non-medical person. I'm still feeling, you know, sort of um, dogged by symptoms and I want to get better. And um, I, I learned about this extreme heat treatment because it turns out Lyme dies at roughly 105 degrees Fahrenheit. And there's a clinic in Germany that discovered by accident that they could cure Lyme by um, heating people's bodies in a medical environment. And so I, um, you know, basically had a frustration and a desire to get back to full health, um, went to visit this clinic, stayed there for two weeks, again, met people from all over the world um, and had a dramatic improvement in my health. And, um, and, and, you know, this clinic has people coming from all over the world, from China and Australia and um, the UK and the US, um, met, met several people from Boston at this clinic in, in Germany. And, um, and in so many ways, it's such an elegant and simple solution. It's very sad that we don't have this sort of treatment currently in the US, or at least that I, that I, that I know of, but it, it really, really was simple. But the, so the good news was I'd figured out how to take care of the Lyme. The bad news was that, that the heat treatment does not cure all the co-infections, right? So things like Bartonella uh, can't be killed at 105 degrees. They don't get killed at 200 degrees. And so, and, and they make that clear to you when you go to visit them. They say, you know, we're gonna help you with your Lyme. You've then gotta go home and deal with these other things and mop up the co-infections. And that's basically what I, I set about doing. But, um, you know, this, uh, this treatment is incredible. I hope the day comes when it's widely available in the US. I think the cynical, the cynical side of me says that, you know, the reason we don't have it is because, you know, you, you can't sell pills. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a simple, elegant treatment that, that, that literally, you know, knocks out Lyme fairly easily. Um, um, but for those who have the resources, the time to do it, I, you know, I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And you know, one thing I, I wanted to ask you was, um, I know from my own experience, it can be incredibly overwhelming and frustrating when some of these treatments that others have successfully done have don't work. 
And so when these treatment fails, it's really hard to continue to hold on to hope. And um, you just kind of lose all hope for, for getting better, um, especially after spending year after year after year living with debilitating illness. So what are some of the things that helped you um, stay emotionally strong during this time? You know, so I would say for me, um, I, I was very fortunate. So in that, you know, I had a wife who was extremely supportive. We had four kids. So of course there was the motivation that came from, for me, from, from my family. But, you know, I think one of the most important things um, is, um, you know, is, is having people to support you. Um, but at the same time, I also think that um, people who are dealing with a health challenge need to be careful about um, trying not to be too much of a burden to their caregivers. Now, it, it kind of depends on where you are on the spectrum. There are some people who are so sick, right? Um, and I was not in that category. But I mean, there are people who are so sick with Lyme, they, they, they can't get out of a bed or a hospital bed. Um, for me, um, like I said, I didn't, I didn't, I did I, I was able to continue going to work. Um, but, you know, just felt um, sort of tired and wiped out for um, a number of years, um, felt pain in joints and um, just um, was really fortunate that my, my wife um, now of 35 years was, was there to help and, and support. Um, and, and then I also think that what happens is there is this community um, amongst people who have Lyme or deal with chronic Lyme. Uh, and the people that I met in Switzerland, in Germany, in Boston, um, you know, um, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing supportive group of people. And I think what happens is when you, you know, when you, you, you start to make friendships with people and next thing you know, you're, you're swapping stories and protocols and ideas and encouragement with people you don't even know sometimes or, or you barely know um, because, because you wouldn't wish, you know, this sort of um, challenge on, on anyone. So, yeah, so for me, you know, that, and, you know, for me, church, church has always been a big part of our life. Um, um, and so, um, you know, leaning on, on my faith, um, during this difficult time, I think what happens for a bunch of people is that when you realize that you have no, in the end, you, when you, when you, when you realize you just cannot control things like, you know, medical outcomes that, um, um, that people often turn to turn to God and turn to their faith because um, they they run out of ideas and um, and it just um, I think it ends up helping to ground people. So I'm not surprised to see that there are a lot of people in the Lyme community and in other medical communities who are people of faith because um, I think a lot of people sort of return to their to, to their you know faith journey at the same time. And how are you feeling now? You know, uh, to be honest, I, I feel quite good. I remember when I when I was sick, I thought, "Golly, how, what am I going to do? Am I going to get back to?" I would meet people and say, "You know, well, how, how much better are you?" And they'd say, "I'm seventy five percent better. I'm ninety percent better." Um, to be honest, I'm you know I'm I'm in better health than I was um, before I, I had Lyme and. I think that's, there's a bunch of reasons, you know, I cleaned up my diet, you know, with the help of um, people like Dr. Terry Walls, uh, with people like yourself, Brandy, and your uh, nutrition uh, protocols. Um, and so um, I think, I feel like I'm less stressed. Um, um, and yeah, so I feel like I'm in better shape now. I know I'm in better shape now than I than I was before I had had Lyme. And, and so that's a great thing. Um, and I suspect that I'm not the only one who, if you can, if you can get through some of the difficult times and start to um, make some progress that, um, um, you know, that there, you know, and I think that's the whole thing. Like, I think what most people need when they have Lyme is first they need a diagnosis. And the second thing they need is hope. Yeah. Um, and so, 
um, having folks like yourselves, you know, produce these podcasts and share information and come alongside people that gives people hope. And, and I think that's my, one of my big messages to your audiences, you know, there's absolutely the opportunity to improve, to get better. Um, um, it just, it, it just, it's a journey though. Paul, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about the clinics. Um, and, and here on our podcast, we've interviewed many folks who have gone to many of the clinics. And I, I wonder what your reaction would be to Dr. Leo Shea, for example, who we interviewed uh, about a year ago, who suggested that, uh, that there isn't an appreciable um, difference in, uh, in the healing journey between people who have gone to the clinics like you had gone to and people who have not. Um, do you think that the two clinics you went to were really important elements of your healing journey? And do you think it did play a role in speeding up your healing? Or do you think it it would not have really made that big a deal? So look, the, the, the clinic in Switzerland, um, like all these folks are staffed by real doctors, right? And And they have great intentions and they have a lot of education, knowledge, protocols to teach people. I think the clinic in Switzerland um, was a great education for me. And I, I, think the, I think the value for me, frankly, was in the people I met. The clinic in Germany has a very specific tactical protocol, which directly deals with Lyme. And here's sort of like the punchline that uh, I hadn't shared before, which is, so, um, um, I, and this is a warning for your listeners, I managed to get reinfected, right? I was working with my fourth child. We were doing yard work um, at the beach house in Rhode Island. Uh, one day trimming hedges. I should have stayed away. <laughs> I should have hired the professionals and um, woke up the next morning um, with a giant rash at my waistband and every cell in my body hurt. And I knew immediately when I woke up what had happened and I had managed to become reinfected. And I was just so mad at myself for being such a dope and letting that happen. So I've actually gone to Germany twice and I have been healed of Lyme by the clinic in Germany twice. So, um, you know, um, so I have no doubts. Um, um, you know, uh, about that at all. Um, you know, the thing that took me a little bit longer to deal with, um, but, but, but the effects were m much less on my body was dealing with a handful of co-infections like Bartonella and other things. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're struck, as you know, they're structurally very different than Lyme. They need different treatments. Um, and what I had discovered along the way. So for me, um, what was really helpful was dealing with um, herbs as, 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 as an approach, as opposed to antibiotics. And so for me, I became a disciple of Stephen Buhner's, read all his materials. And, um, and so for me, you know, um, you know, the perfect protocol for me, for someone who gets, um, you know, um, gets Lyme is, would, would be extreme heat treatment and then herbs. And that would be my lineup. Um, uh, recognizing that uh, accessing the clinic in Germany is not is not easy because it's not cheap. So let's talk about mindset. I, I'd like to merge the mindset question that Brandy had asked you with the with the clinic experience. Um, did you believe before you went to the first clinic that going to the clinic would be the be all end all and you'd come back healed? Yes. I did, and I was annoyed when it didn't happen, right? Um, and mostly because I guess I had just listened to other folks and I got myself excited. And I had just had so much positive anticipation. Um, they have heat treatment in Switzerland, but it is not at the same uh, level as in Germany. And, um, and so, um, again, I think I learned a lot, um, but, um, you know, and these are very serious clinics, by the way, you know, both of them deal with people with cancer and Lyme and very serious health issues. Um, what's fascinating to me is if you go to the, the clinic in Germany, you meet people who are getting extreme heat treatment and their, their European insurance is paying for it. 
because because the medical community in Europe has bought into the idea that this is very, very helpful. And extreme hypothermia can be administered on a whole body basis, which is the way I had it, and which is the way most Lyme people get it. Um, but if you have uh, a cancer issue, let's say, you know, making this up in your arm, the extreme hypothermia is simply applied to your arm, right? Not your whole body. So, um, so yeah, so it's, um, it's, um, you know, it's, again, this, the, you mentioned before this idea of crowdsourcing um, solutions. Um, at this point, you know, thanks to the internet, the velocity of solutions is, moves faster and faster. We share more and more. The knowledge base today in the year 2022 is so dramatically greater than it was when I first um, contracted Lyme back in 2010. Um, I think, you know, and, and because of the great work that you folks are doing uh, at TIC Bootcamp, you know, I think that you're, you're just accelerating the sharing of knowledge. And I think it gives people much more hope, right? So, so Paul, let's finish building up this piece of, of, the, of the crowdsourcing. You, you shared with us that you use antibiotics, you used hypothermia, you used um, a number of other treatment protocols. So give us a list of all of what you use in addition to the to the herbs, the uh, hypothermia, and the um, and the antibiotics. Um, well, so look, um, so I I tried a bunch of things when you know because when you're sick you want to get better, right? So, um, let's see, um, you know, I when I went when I went to Switzerland, I met a a Harvard trained doctor who had Lyme. And she was quite convinced that using a Rife machine was, was the ultimate elegant solution to Lyme. And so for a period of time, um, I used one for a period of about six months religiously. I would get up early in the morning. I would use it two, three times a day because I was just convicted. I, I, you know, within reason, I was willing to try anything to get better. And again, I think it was more my mental attitude that I was going to get better come hell or high water that, you know, helped me get better that and the support of my wife and, and friends and people like Brandy and others I met along the way. But, um, you know, I tried a, a Rife machine. Um, at one point, I met a doctor and he suggested IVIG. Um, I had some trepidation around that. I tried that. My entire body broke out in a rash. I stopped that. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, but for me, that like the protocols that actually worked: um, extreme heat, herbs, um, cleaning up the diet. Those are the things that, uh, for me, uh, actually worked. So, if a friend of mine was to get ill tomorrow, that's what I would suggest. So, Paul, let's let's talk about the treatments that didn't work and how you made the decision to pivot away from those treatments. Because I, I think that's just as important as identifying what treatments worked for you, right? It's important for our, our listeners to have a list of different options, some of which yeah. may work for them that didn't work for you and, and vice versa, right? Because we're all bio-individuals. Um, we like to focus on how you make a decision to pivot away from something. Were there body signals? Were there, in, in, uh, so I understand with the, the case of the Rife machine, you, you had a physical manifestation, which was a rash, but what are the tools that you use to pivot away from treatments? And when did you know that it was right to pivot away uh, rather than sort of suck up what is happening, perhaps towards getting a, a better outcome? Yeah, so, so look, for me, right, antibiotics, hyperthermia, Rife, spent months using Rife, just did not see, uh, trying to work on Bartonella because I didn't want to take antibiotics, right? And so that's the challenge. If you don't want to take antibiotics, then, you know, what are you going to do? Because some of these things aren't going to exit um, just because you asked them to. So like, how are you going to get ahead of the toxic load, right? That comes with, um, you know, an infection. So the Rife, I spent months, uh, I did not see any discernible change. So at some point I had to, and I was really, and it's hard because you, you know, you get excited, you talk to other people who are excited and they're quite convinced that this is helping them. So you think, all right, this is going to help me and then get your hopes up and then time passes and you have to at some point say like, you know what, it's just not working for me. Um, and so you give it enough time. But the IVIG, 
it was pretty quick that um, it was pretty clear to me very quickly that my body was not uh, going to uh, endure that. And so um, that was put aside uh, very quickly. When your entire body itches, you're like, no, thank you. I think I'll pass on that. Um, but, you know, but then herbs, prayer, loving spouse, those things all helped. Um, you know, that's the, that's pretty much the full list for me. So talk to us about prayer and, and, and how prayer helped you on this journey, right? Because we, we have to, we certainly focus on feeling, uh, healing physically. We talk about all the different protocols that we use. We don't spend a lot of time talking about the emotional elements of this and how you must be, you must be in uh, the parasympathetic uh, nervous system in order to be able to have your body heal. And prayer can, of course, play a role in getting us out of the sympathetic nervous system. Talk to us about what prayer looked like for you and, and how that helped you to calm your mind so that you could heal. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, you know, on some levels, it feels like it's simple. And on other levels, it's, it's complicated, right? When you're, when you, if you're a person of faith and, and you want something, whether you want healing for yourself or a loved one or something that you think is important, um, you know, you pray, right? You turn to God, um, you know, you acknowledge God's role in your life um, and, and you, um, you thank him and him slash her and you, you, you know, you ask for things. And, and, and look, when, when you pray, you get one of three answers. Yes, no, or not now. And, and, and it takes, um, but, but the act of praying in and of itself, um, I think is an act of turning, turning these issues over to God and, and, and sort of recognizing that you, you know, as much as we all, you know, make ourselves the center of our own universe, we, you know, you are acknowledged that we're not the center of the universe and that we're not in control. And, and I think eventually what ends up happening is while you're not happy to be sick, I think eventually what happens is you start to realize that even being sick, you know, it, it's, it, it is in fact not the end of the world, right? That there, that there is hope. Um, I think it was really helpful to have, to make so many friends around the globe who, um, who were dealing with the same challenges, but then also um, to talk to, to have friends who are, you know, people of faith, um, knowing friends are praying, knowing that there are other people praying for you. Um, that's powerful, right? Um, I have I have a team of 130 people around the globe to work for me. I, I pray for my team, right? Um, I pray for my family and my friends. And, and I think that's powerful. Um, so, but, you know, I guess that's why they call it faith. So talk to us about how, faith in a higher being and in this podcast we we never tell anyone what they should believe that's you know that's going to be a part of every individual person's journey but in your case when when you were when you were praying to god when you were praying to your 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 higher being how did that help you to have faith in your ability to heal what was the connection between having belief in a higher being and belief in your ability to heal You know, uh, that's it's a really interesting question. I, I think, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, dear God, please take all my problems away. It's a whole nother thing to say, God, please just help me get through this day. Help me get through this morning. You know, you know, help me to be strong enough to go to work and earn a living and look out for my family and, you know, help me to be strong enough to show up. Right. I mean, um, you know, Brandy, you probably can relate to some of this, like what happens when you just want to show up at your kid's soccer game. Right. Or you just, you know, you just want to be there for somebody else, right. Like a parent um, or someone. So for me at some point, um, you know, it was clear that it was going to be a little bit of a journey to get back to full health I'm sure I prayed every day, Lord, please, you know, lift this burden for me. But a, a lot of times it was just, 
just the act of praying and talking to God um, has some effect that I don't know if I fully understand it, but it it just it 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 gives you the strength to keep going, just knowing, believing that God is out there. Yeah. Yeah, I you know I do have to share. Um, and sometimes those prayers aren't answered until like many years later. And, um, you know, Paul, as you were sharing your story, I was thinking about that and like thinking about all the days that I prayed, like, please just help me get through this day. And um, I soon recovered. And I remember my young son gave a chapel talk about my experience and it was about overcoming adversity. And I remember during that time thinking, I lost so many years of my children's lives, but then my son was giving me a gift that day by saying my mother was strong during that time and I've learned from this and I'm going to be able to overcome the next challenge that, that awaits us because my mom taught us how to be strong when she was not feeling strong and she was ready to give up. And to hear that from a nine-year-old boy um, who had been through it and watched me suffer was pretty amazing. So um, I appreciate you sharing your story. And with that said, I also, um, I know how challenging it has been for you and your entire family going through this. So what part of the Lyme journey has been beautiful and taught you about yourself and the world that only suffering can teach? Oh, wow. Great question. Big question. You know, I, I, I think one of the things that happens when you are ill for a little bit. Um, I, I learned this with my mom. My mom, my mom had had a, a huge stroke when she was 45 years old and she was paralyzed in half her body. And, you know, I was young at the time I was a teenager. And I remember after that, whenever I would go out, especially if I would go to the grocery store, all of a sudden I started to notice other people who had physical challenges because my mom had physical challenges, right? Like, like, you know, so I adored my mom. And, um, and, and if you slow down, if you go, especially go to the grocery store is the perfect place to do this, right? You go there and you slow down and you don't just fly through and focus on what you're doing, but observe people. You realize there's a lot of people out there in the world that um, have physical challenges. And so, I think what happened for, for me was being ill for a couple of years caused me to slow down, caused me to refocus on what was important, made me much more empathetic again um, to the needs of other people. Um, you know, and so, you know, just like you, you guys, like, you know, you get to know people and next thing you know, and, 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 and you get to know doctors and, you know, and next thing you know, I have doctors sending patients to chat with me because they, they think it would be an encouragement to their patients to hear. Um, and you think like, you know, my wife likes to joke, you know, you're not really a doctor, Paul, you just play one on TV. Well, yes, but, um, but that's okay, right? Um, and so for me, you know, um, you know, whether it's working with Brandy at the Dean Center or or chatting with patients, um, um, you know, just being able to give back in some small way to other people um, because you really do understand what they're going through. Um, that's a joy, right? I mean, just the idea that you could be helpful on a practical level, or you can give someone some modest, modest bit of hope um, to get better because 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 I got better. Um, you know that's a that's a complete joy. Um, that's a gift. Um, so yeah, I um, um, yeah, I, I I think you know being sick was definitely not all bad. At the time, I would not have said that. 
uh, and it clearly helps that I made a full recovery. Um, so it, I know that it makes it easier to say that, but there were definitely hidden blessings to being sick for a little while. So, Paul, why don't you talk to us about the Dean Center and why you decided that the Dean Center would be a great outlet for you to give back to the community? I did it because Brandy told me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I have my wife. I have Brandy. I have a lot of strong women in my life, um, including my two daughters. But, um, you know, when um, when Brandy asked me to consider coming along and, and being the board chair there, my first thought was, I, I do not want to do this. Um, and then I thought, I, I, I don't want to do this, but um, but I do want to give back. And so it was sort of a, a, a really good vehicle. You know, I've been involved with other nonprofits and been on the boards of other things. But, you know, where's... Um, you know, Lyme has just been, was such an orphan disease for so long, and it's finally broken through in terms of the public conscious. Um, you know, you, you both know better than I, and that um, it's just seemed like a perfect vehicle because it was a, it's affiliated with a major hospital, it's affiliated with a major university, um, and so the, the chance to help, you know, set up shop and, you um, uh, th that was just, it, it just made too much sense. And so I, I felt like I had to get involved at least, at least for a season to um, get involved there. And, and that was fascinating too, because surprise, surprise, when the Dean Center opened its doors, there was a line of potential patients around the block and, you know, out the county. It was, you know, there's just, there's just such a need. Um, I am grateful for the internet, you know, the internet, which brings us all, all the worst things in life also brings us a lot of good things. And um, the ability to share information um, via the internet is, has been great. Brandy, why don't you talk to us a little bit about uh, some of the work that you're doing and how folks uh, can contribute to some of the good work that you're doing. Yeah. So we started an organization eight years ago uh, called Write Out Line, and we initially um, partnered with SoulCycle and um, had rides all over the country. And we realized that uh, treatments are very expensive. Many treatments aren't covered by insurance companies and people are paying out of pocket. Uh, and I heard so many stories of people going bankrupt and losing their jobs and unable to afford housing and food and treatment. And so we decided to raise funds for people in need of financial treatments and medical care. And um, so we hold charity rides all over the country to raise funds for people in need. So every year we have um, uh, grant recipients uh, who get grants so that they can pay for their uh, medical treatments. And uh, I believe we're going to have our last, last um, application um, grant cycle, I'm sorry, in uh, January or February. So we are looking for donations or people to help out volunteer um, in any way. You can go to www.writeoutline.org and um, help support other people who are in need of uh, financial assistance to pay for their medical needs. So thanks, Brandy. So now as my guest co-host, you get to ask Paul the final question of the podcast. Ah. <laughs> um, Paul, first of all, thank you so much for being here and for finally sharing your story. And so the last question this evening, if a loved one came to you with a tick biting them on their leg, what would you recommend so that they, they would not have to face the suffering caused by chronic Lyme? Uh, so that's a great question, um, Brandy. Um, for me, after all this time, I think it's pretty clear. The first thing, the first thing I would do is suggest um, you remove the tick, but then you you save the tick. You put it in a plastic bag and you mail it to a state lab to get it tested, so you get a sense of what's going on, uh, you know, and, and what the potential risks might be. Right? Does it have Lyme? Does it have Rocky Mountain spotted fever? Does it have Bartonella? That's important. So. Save the tick, get it tested at a lab. Um, go see a Lyme literate doctor immediately 
and immediately start doxycycline for a minimum of six week cycle. Um, make sure you're tested for co-infections, right? Um, Bartonella, Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then for me, it would be immediately start herbal treatment um, um, and make, you have to make your own decision whether you're gonna go the antibiotic route or the herbal route. I think if it's early days, you try antibiotics, see how your body reacts, make sure you're taking probiotics to, um, to keep your gut healthy. Um, and if you're in a, um, so, so I think you described a, a, you know, immediate response. So treat for, treat for the Lyme, treat for the, um, the co-infections, take probiotics, clean up your diet, get a lot of sleep. That's what I would do. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Paul Sellian, Executive Vice President and Chief Investment Officer at State Street. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Paul, please check out his Instagram at PJSellian, P-J-S-E-L-I-A-N. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 300 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback. Please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you as always for listening.